It's June 22nd, 2020. This is Rook. Possible to untangle the stories of people living in the Iranian diaspora from the lessons and legacy of the 1979 revolution. But for those who were at the top of their game in Iran in the late 70s, the tales of life and career upheaval can be devastating. Imagine, for example, one of the best tennis players in the world, an Iranian, suddenly having to put his career on hold, effectively taken off the courts for 10 years. Today, a feature interview with Mansour Bahrami about his story and how it has turned into one of redemption and inspiration. This is stories from to and about the Iranian diaspora. I'm Gian Gomeshi. This is Rook. Welcome to episode number 20 of Rook. Omidvar hastam ke khub hastin. Hi, Shaya. Hi. Happy uh, episode number 20 to you. Oh, yes. I have a small uh, bag of peste for you to celebrate. Oh, great. And then you give one to me. I have a question. Okay. Why, um, I, I mean, ironically, do you say, Omidvaram has Omidvaram khub hastin or you? Did I, is it khub khub bashin? I thought we went through this and, and the, the people, I, the, my people decided that it was okay. They wrote it and said, hastin is okay. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I forgot. Omidvar hastam ke khub bashin. Uh, do you like you like pistachios, right? Yes, you I would know. have to. You would be a traitor without uh, liking yes. pistachios. So um, yeah, extra peste for uh, episode number twenty. Great, thank you. Shia, have you ever played tennis? Uh, of times, but no, not really. You're not a tennis player. Do you play any sports? You bike. You, I bike. Yeah. What was your question? Sorry. My question is: <laughs> <laughs> We have a. A superstar tennis player, now the great entertainer as well, yes, Mansoor Bahrami, yeah, coming yeah. up today. Yes, and know. so actually coming up in a few minutes. Yeah. But uh, but so I was asking you what your sport is. What's your uh-huh. uh, soccer? Actually. Football, yeah, Football, soccer, yeah. 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 Uh, do you use a Tupacel uh, ticket? <laughs> See, I'm learning. Yes. For those who did not hear the last episode of Rook, you got to you got to keep up because we learned what the uh, well, actually, I was going to say the colloquial word, but it's the actual yeah. way that you you what you call a soccer ball, yeah. a football, is tupe celtique. Celtique. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so well, that's for me. The sports were always soccer, like football or hockey. That's so in the winter uh-huh. months, hockey. In the summer, what football. About tennis. 
Not not much. Uh-huh. Uh, I I have uh, actually my dear cousins are are really into tennis and they keep oh. trying to get me to play tennis and I'm just not very good, you know, because I've only done it a few times and so then I go let's play soccer so that I can look uh-huh. better, you know. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, the I mean the Premier League soccer just started, and I uh, and I think the Persian League football starts uh, this week, right? I, I think so. Yeah, it, it's been a years that I've never followed. I, I you don't follow. It. I don't. You don't follow the English league either. Yeah, not no. not in yeah. But uh, well, you're an artsy guy, well, Shia. No, Let's no, face no. it. No, no, no. Okay. No. I, 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 I used to follow all the footballs all all over the world, but mm. recently, no. Uh, well, uh, I have a question, actually. Now. Yes. Uh, what's your favorite team? I mean? You don't know what my favorite team is? No. You've been to my house and you didn't see the flag? Oh, maybe not. <laughs> no. It's uh, my favorite team is Arsenal. That plays oh really? The, yes. <laughs> now, I I would say I, w- I wouldn't even say I'm an Arsenal fan. I would say an, I'm an Arsenal obsessive. Since really? I was well, you know, I grew up in England, yeah. and since I was a little boy, I was a fan of Arsenal. Oh. So, you know, this is decades in the making. My uh, my Arsenal fandom, which is of course an exercise in masochism, because they're always you know there's always some tragedy. We're always losing, mm. you know. <laughs> I yeah. mean, uh, notwithstanding yeah. the early two thousands with the Invincibles, the great team that we had then, uh, it it can be a a, a real sad, you, you know, growing up in Toronto and, you know, my favorite teams being Arsenal and the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, who haven't won a Stanley Cup in my lifetime. You know, it was just a disaster. But I watched the Premier League starting on the on this past weekend. And so you didn't watch, but they don't have, there's no crowd, right? Oh, no so, so it's really awkward. Wow. It's weird. Ooh. And then they've been piping in the soundtrack of a crowd. which sounds ridiculous the idea of it but it actually helps a little bit i know this is controversial some people don't like that for me it helps a little bit because the whole idea is just so ridiculous these guys these well-paid guys playing in this giant stadium that's empty there's no humans in it with some referees wearing masks i mean the whole thing is weird right so i don't know what's if with the persian league i'm assuming is going to do something similar where they'll, they'll not have fans there and maybe they'll use the soundtrack yeah. or something. <laughs> nice to see you, Shia. Nice to see you. Nice and let's get to our uh, featured guest. So imagine being a teenage tennis prodigy, living in a sports complex housing 14 courts, and not being allowed to step foot on one. Imagine teaching yourself to play tennis with dustpans, frying pans, or a plank of wood before you ever own your first tennis racket at the age of 13. Imagine that despite all your unorthodox equipment and dearth of practice, you get the opportunity to play for the first time on a court only when the national team is short one player. Then you make it to the Davis Cup and help your national team all by the age of 16. You are widely seen as one of the best new players on the international scene. And then, boom, a revolution in your country shifts power to a government that considers tennis a Western capitalist and elitist sport and slams shut all tennis courts in the country. And with it, your prospects of being one of the world greats in your prime. 
My guest today is a legendary doubles player, a tennis star, and an international favorite. He's also one of the most talented tennis tricksters of all time, a maverick who can serve while holding six tennis balls in his hand, a man who chats with the crowd whilst feeding lobs to his opposition, and a man who can catch tennis balls in his pocket while playing an improbable winning shot. Mansour Bahrami is an Iranian-French former professional tennis player who reached the French Open doubles final in 1989, and he has been a mainstay of the seniors' invitational tennis circuit for more than 20 years, running some of the legend's meets. Mansour is considered to have found his niche on the ATP Champions Tour, where his flamboyant style and propensity for spectacular shots jived with the tour's more entertainment-oriented mandate. In reference to his showmanship, his 2009 English-language autobiography is titled The Court Jester. He still plays tournaments with the greats around the world, and right now, Mansour Bahrami joins me from Paris, France. Hello, monsieur. Hello. Hello to you and all the people who are listening to us. What a great pleasure it is to speak to you. Merci, que, oh, my dear. We're really happy to have you on this program. It's a pleasure. First of all, I mean, uh, you're in France. How have you, I'd be remiss if I don't ask you how you've been coping during this COVID pandemic. France was hit pretty hard. I'm guessing you were unable to get on the tennis courts for a while. Well, I start for the first time after three months and a half. We opened the National Tennis Center yesterday. And so for the first time, I went on court and practiced for like a half an hour session just to uh, hit some balls and, and have a good sweat and uh, that's it uh, but the, the locker rooms are not open the bars and the restaurant at the, the club is not open you can just go there and hit some balls and come out you know, Mansur, we, I was thinking about tennis because um, a, a few weeks ago we had a, a woman named Farinaz Lari on, on this show who's a champion kickboxer. And obviously that's a contact sport. And she was saying, I have no idea when post-pandemic we're going to be able to get back together. And we actually used tennis as an example of a sport that we could imagine even during COVID you could play because you're across you know, the court from each other. What can you tell us about how soon things might get back to some sense of normalcy for tennis fans? Well, well, actually, uh, we could not play because if I have the COVID and I don't know about it and I serve with the ball, for example, and uh, that ball is my hand and my the ball I hit is out and you mm. catch the ball, you can get infected too. So right. that's, uh, that, that was the main reason that we didn't play. And uh, we are very still very, very uh, careful and, and trying to go by the you know just never you cannot go there without the mask you know i was lucky we have a small garden so i was trying to do some training physical in the garden so it, it was okay it was better than to stay in the flat and not be able to go out well, I know Wimbledon has been canceled this year where you're one of the favorites. And I, I want to get into your whole story. But before I do, uh, you're widely known as not just a great player, Mansoor, but the great entertainer, uh, especially in recent years. You've made it clear that winning comes second to you after wanting the audience to really enjoy themselves. Mm. And it, it's a really lovely sentiment, but it's not something we often hear from athletes who seem to uh, be trained to just want to win, win, win. Where does the incentive to entertain come from in you? Jian, you know, when I started playing tennis, 
There was no money. I didn't play tennis to become rich. It was a game that was forbidden for me. And we would go uh, out of the tennis club, outside somewhere, you know, just make it like a tennis court as a, a 10 years old, nine years old kid can do, you know. We do our lines and then put a net. Hmm. And then uh, I would play with my friends with a dustpan, with a piece of wood. And we were just having fun. It was a fun and fun game. And we would do all these trick shots, you know. We would try to do who's doing better trick shots, you know. And uh, so this, is, this stayed on me. And you say, why I do that? I never had a tennis lesson in my life. I never had a mm. tennis coach in my life, you know. And so once uh, you are uh, self-taught, you know, you're doing it alone, yeah, and no one is there to tell you, no, you cannot do this, you're not allowed to do that, you have to do a decent tennis, serious point, you have to win. So it's, it's just stayed stay the game for me. You know, when I start, people always seem to enjoy my game. Even if when I was 10, 12 years old, hitting against the wall, people would just stop and say, wow, how you do that? And I don't know, I still don't know. I just tell them, you know, I don't know. I. I I just played like this all, all my life. And uh, you said winning is secondary for me. I love, I love to win. It's not that I'm, I, love, I like to lose. The main thing for me is when people leaving after my match, I love to see people with a big smile. It has happened that I have sometimes won a match. And I thought that, okay, but people didn't really enjoy it that as much as I wanted them to enjoy it. Mm -hmm. So it was like a loss for me. I feel like I am uh, going on the uh, stage, on the theater, and then people are there. <laughs> and I feel like I'm, I'm a, like a one-man show. I do, I do my stuff, and I love to see people with a big smile. That's that's my goal. It's so. I mean, this is why people love you too, because they they can feel that 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 you're there for them. Uh, there's so much you just said there. I want, I'm going to get into the, those ten best years that you lost. But but you know, I have to say, when you talk about because uh, I've seen you in other interviews, you say, "I don't know, I don't know how I'm doing these tricks." I don't. I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to say that you're uh, You, I, I don't believe you. I think you must know. I think you are a master who knows exactly what you're doing and you play this guy who says i don't know i'm just but your shots are too spectacular for you to not know how you're no, doing yeah i don't lie i i <laughs> i have no one ever taught me these things you know when for example uh, people tell me i can i held 21 balls in my hand once people tell me how you do that the only explanation i had for this was that from age five to age 13, I was ball boying for people. I was ball boying from five o'clock in the morning and sometimes till eight, nine at night. And just sometimes I had all these balls in my hand and waiting <laughs> for, the, for the man who was playing to, to ask me for a ball. So I think uh, this comes to my mind. That's, that's how and that's why I learned to keep the 21 balls in hand. I can serve with nine balls in the hand and toss one without dropping the others. But nobody, nobody came to tell, okay, Mansur, I want to teach you how to serve with eight balls, nine balls, six balls. <laughs> I, I just do it myself. And I tried this 
and I see people laughing, they're having a good time, and I say, great, I'm so happy to be able to make people laugh, which is not always easy. I'm not a very funny man in everyday life, but on the tennis court, I am the happiest man in the world, and I'm, I could be the funniest man on the court, uh, you know, because that I know since 40 years, 50 years, I make people laugh, and, and, uh, and they say thank you, and that is the best salary for me, mm. just to see them smile and say, Mansur, we had good time, thank you for this. Sometimes people tell me, Mansur, you know, my wife hated tennis, so I brought it, since she saw you, She's playing tennis. She wants <laughs> to play tennis. People tell me this every day. And, and this is why I'm still at 64 playing. And I, this is what I like to hear. This is what I like to see that people having fun and enjoying. And, and, and that's, uh, that's great. I mean, I, I love it. My only point was you're also a great player and there's no way that you're as good as you are without practicing. So you make it seem easy, but those tricks are the tricks. Of, I mean, there's a reason why uh, McEnroe and Elias Stasi and all these guys consider you one of the greats. It's because you, of your technique too, right? They are very kind with me, you know. I mean, I have had the honor and uh, privilege to play with the, the, the biggest name of our sport, you know, and which is not given to to many people, you know. I, I played with people like Rod Laver, you know, who is our, um, <laughs> the god of tennis, yes. you know. I played with uh, Ken Rosewall, Newcomb, uh, Roach, uh, you know, and then coming down to Santana, uh, Nastasi, Connors, Borg, and, and it's been fantastic. and and. When Jimmy Connors started his tour, you know, in, back in 1994, we knew each other. We have played some exhibitions in Europe. He said, Mansur, I want you to play every tournament of my tour. And it was great, you know. So I said, yeah, I mean, it wasn't because I was a, a Grand Slam winner or, or num past number one. It was just because I, I was doing something that the others didn't or couldn't do it, you know. Mm -hmm. So... That's why I was there, and I was the, the only one who was playing every tournament of Jimmy, and that was fantastic. Take me back. I want to actually um, go step by step through how we got to where you are today. You have this remarkable story, and you know, all of us in the Iranian diaspora are affected by the events of Iran in the last uh, 41 years, but you're one of these very difficult stories. Um, First of all, let's go back before the Angola, before the revolution. What was yes. your what was your early childhood like in Iran? What do you remember as a little little kid? My my great parents they were farmers. They lived in a village in Arak, which is like three hundred kilometers from Tehran. They had a lot of livestock and everything. They lost everything. I was born in nineteen fifty six, in April nineteen fifty six. Nine months after my father and mother and the family, they came to Tehran because my father, my grandparents lost everything. And my fa father came to Tehran. He didn't have anything. He was already 59 years old. And he had a job as a, a gardener in Amjadie Stadium. Do you know Amjadie? I, I've heard of it, yes. Well, you are maybe young, but I mean, Very I don't young. know how old you are, Jian. <laughs> But Amjadie was the paradise on earth for me, the best place in all my life. If 
everything has to come back to 1957, 58, I would love to do the same thing and come back to MJDA. And, and my father had a gardener job in this uh, sport complex, MJDA Stadium. And I was two, three years old. I started walking and I saw every sports court and field and everything and it was okay i could go anywhere i had no people they knew me you know they were ah this is mansoor they get little mansoor and i had no problem doing any others i mean to going to football field basketball volleyball swimming and everything but tennis every time i came to the court they kicked my ass and they set out you know and so hmm. uh, i couldn't understand why they they don't want me here so uh, after coming back and back and then and I was five, six years old, they said, okay, you can come here and you can, you are only allowed to do, to do ball boy. You are not allowed to go on court and hit on the courts. I was happy. I was playing uh, ball boying for 10 cents an hour, you know, and, and then uh, I, I loved the game and I just wanted to, to play tennis because well, it wait was a second. forbidden. So, so when you were, you see all of these sports, lots of kids, especially running kids would love, for example, football or soccer, you know, yeah, uh, you yeah. see all these sports. Do you remember what it was? Because this was going to become now the rest of your life, decades of your life. Do you remember first seeing tennis, what it was about this sport that so captured your imagination? The, the very, very first thing was that the only sport that I could, I was in, you know, uh, sleeping. I would wake up by the sound of the ball hitting, <laughs> being hit by a racket, you know. Wow. Five in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, because in Tehran, you know, uh, especially in the summertime, it gets so hot after like 9, 10, people don't play tennis anymore until 4, 5 in the afternoon, and then it cools down, and then they come back and play. But... Uh, that's why the five, when I say five in the morning, five in the morning was the busiest time of, of playing tennis. People would come at five in the morning. I could hear the sound of the ball. And it's just something that I, I, I think I, I liked. And I would just come up and go and, and see people play and, and later on be ball boy. And, 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 you know, I was making 10 cents per hour. That was the, the fee that the, we were getting. Uh, and I'm guessing, was, I'm guessing that in, I mean, not that this would be unique to Iran. This is the, this was the case all over the world. It's become a little more accessible now, but I'm guessing there was a real class divide. Like tennis was more for rich people, right? You know, tennis, it was in Iran in 1965. I think we had maybe in the whole country, we had maybe 35, 40 tennis courts. Oh. Not not clubs, huh? I'm I'm saying in Tehran we had Amjadie Stadium and that's it. Wow! And you had the the, the English uh, embassy who had one court, French embassy had the court, American embassy had the court, but that was for for themselves. But beside that, you had in the whole country you had 35, maybe 40 courts. And then later on, we had the Imperial Country Club and then the, the Taj Tennis Club and, and many, many others. But uh, tennis was a new sport, you know, and, and it was for the elite. And, and yeah. uh, uh, just because of that, there were so many people wanted to play, mainly rich people. And, and so there was no room for me to go and play. 
So there's this mental image that I have of of you playing with frying pans, um, and uh, because you love this sport, but you don't have. Uh, uh, and, and there's 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 so many great. Uh, almost mythical stories of great athletes, you know, uh, um, great soccer players who played with bare feet or, or hockey players who had to borrow uh, skates and, and stuff them full of newspapers to fit the right size. And you're there with frying pans. When was the first time you got your hands on a, a real racket, on a real tennis court? Uh, when I was, you know, like 12 years old, I was ball boying for Shizad Akbari. Shizad Akbari was my idol. Yeah, he was playing Davis Cup for Iran. I was ball boying for him. He was giving tennis lesson, you know, for living. And I was ball boying. So one day he said, Mansoor, if you uh, ball boy properly today, I have a gift for you. I said, okay, I'm going <laughs> to do the best I can. At the end of the evening, he gave me a racket. And uh, I was 12 years old. And so here I am with my first racket of my life and so i was so excited so happy that i have a real racket i couldn't sleep really that night and then day after i have my racket i come to the tennis court it's like one in one in the afternoon there we had 13 courts in the amjadia stadium and every every court was empty and it was like a hot summer day you know and i had a friend there he was allowed to play uh, and he said Mansur let's go play let's go play try your racket you know she's your first racket and everything so I couldn't wait and I really had to take this risk and to go to the court and we went and we, we played like maybe 45 seconds max one minute and I saw myself surrounded by the guards and um, so all they needed to ask me was Mansur you know F off, go out, you know, and I knew that I would I have to go, so no problem. But uh, one of these guys, he, he, he grabbed me, he stopped me, he uh, took me over his head uh, for six, seven times, and he smashed me on the ground. And uh, I swear to God, I thought that it was the last day of my life. Yes. So... Uh, there was blood all over the place. I couldn't really move anymore. And he went towards my racket and I said to him, please don't touch my racket. And he gave me a very bad look and, and he, he took my racket. He put it on a step and he smashed it in two and, and it was like he broke and he broke my racket. That was the first uh, memory of my first racket. It's, it's, I mean, your story is amazing, not just because we'll get to the revolution where that derails your, your career, obviously, but even before that, there's so many obstacles, you know, your, um, uh, you don't have the equipment, uh, you, you, and, yeah. and then you're, you're, you're beaten up and, and your racket is smashed. Nevertheless, by the age of 16, you become selected to be part of the Iranian Davis Cup team, and, and you become one of the country's top players, effectively. And, and Mansour, I mean, you said in the beginning you didn't, you know, you just saw this as a fun thing, but when you're 16 and then you're with the Davis Cup, did you know at this point that there were tennis stars making a lot of rod labor, making a lot of money playing this sport? Did it occur to you at that age in Iran that this could actually be a career? Well, 
I knew that there were stars. I knew about Rod Laver. I knew about Ken Roosevelt. But no, I was not aware of how much money they make or anything. When I was 12, 13, we didn't have television. Uh, we didn't, we couldn't see the tennis tournaments. So no, I was not aware how much money they are making. But uh, I know that as soon as I, they allow me to play, when I was 13, they said, OK, Mansur, Federation said, Mansur, now you can go on court anytime you want, as much as you want. Here is two rackets and you play. And I start winning. When I was 14, I won under 16 and under 18, uh, the, you know. Even with piece of wood, I could have beat people who <laughs> played since t- 10 years. Even today, I'm able to beat people who play, you know, club members uh, with, with a piece of wood. I bet I can go on court and, and beat them, you know. So, and that was, I was making a lot of bet, betting that, you know, with a piece of wood, with a, a frying pan, I can beat you. And people would say, no, how can you do? I said, okay, let's go to the court. We bet, I don't know, 10 bucks, $10. And, <laughs> and we, that's why I was making my money. So uh, by the time I became 16, 17, I was top three, four player in Iran, you know. Uh, but again, when, uh, when I was 20, the, everything stopped. Yes. You know, we had a, one of the biggest uh, ATP tournaments in Iran in 1977. That was the last time we did it. And uh, it was canceled for 78 because there was hundreds of thousands of people in the streets and no one could dare go and play tennis. So in 79, in February 79, Islamic Republic was officially installed. But in 78, we didn't play. 79, we didn't play. 80, we didn't play. You know, so. But you're this this player in your prime. And I want to get to your personal story. But first of all, for for those non-Iranians listening or or for anyone who doesn't remember how exactly this went down, and I'm sorry to make you be the person to explain this to us, but why on earth would a sport be entirely banned by a regime? What what was their exact reasoning? Well, they said uh, tennis, especially tennis, they said is an American uh, capitalist game we don't want. They try to uh, stop every sport but uh, the one was which was more damaged was like tennis because it was for the elite because they said we don't want because the ladies they were playing with the sh- you know skirts very short skirts right, right. and and i left but like three four years later they finally opened because there were many many people who were living from tennis. So they put pressure. And myself, in the uh, summer of uh, 1980, we were there every day with the Ministry of Sport, asking them, please open and thing. And finally, we came with this idea of doing a tournament uh, called uh, Revolution, Revolution Cup. Cup. Let me get to that. But, for, but, yes. but first, you, you then, at this point, you're one of the best players in the country, your, your top three, uh, if not number one. Do, do you remember when you first heard you would no longer be able to play tennis? Can, can you take us back to the emotion you would have felt hearing that your country is banning the sport that you're number one of? Well, in, in 1978, when we had this tournament was uh, going to happen, in 77, 78, I, you know, I was 
traveling to play the ATP tournaments and then things were going really rough in Iran and, and dangerous people sometimes people were dying you know sometimes in the revolution uh, there was fire everywhere and, and so well, I came back to, to Iran and, and uh, many people those who were playing tennis were mainly you know the elite and many of them left Iran so the, the course automatically be, became with no clients, nobody right. was playing. I couldn't go there, play just alone for, uh, there was, it was very dangerous. People would come to the club and could just kill you, you know, or, or beat you up. Or, and then the tournament that we had, which was called Aryamir Cup, uh, it was one of the biggest tournaments. I think there was two, three tournaments were paying $150,000 and Iran was one of them. Mm. As you know prize money so uh, the tournament just they said we can't uh, impossible to to organize is very dangerous so we had to like two weeks before the tournament everything was cancelled and so and then but we stayed there we couldn't do anything we just were playing backgammon all day for to to pass the time until a few months after officially they just put the locks on the every door of the clubs and then we saw there was like trees were growing on the clay court, which was very, wow. very heartbreaking for, uh, for me and, and my friends, uh, tennis players. You were a young man still at this point. You're in your early 20s. I mean, did, did your, what were your parents saying? What were you close with? Were they saying just, hey, stay away, don't, don't give up this tennis stuff at this point? No, my parents really didn't know what exactly tennis is. My, my, my father knew that there was tennis court. My mother never saw me play tennis. My father never saw me play tennis. My mother saw me for the first time play tennis in France. You know, many years after when I invite her to come. Sorry, so even when you're number me. one in the late 70s in Iran, they don't know how they don't watch you play? No, no, but they didn't, uh, they never came to any tournament to, to watch me because, uh, as I said, uh, it was for the elite and we were not the elite. So I was sometimes even, uh, I was one of the best tennis player, top two, three, you know, and I was going to play with some friends of mine who are, one of them is is in New York, uh, my friend John Geary is a great man, I love him, I talk to him today, I talk to him every day. And he was member of the club Imperial, I would go with my friend Kambiz Deraf Shijavan, we were Asian champion, we would go play with, with our friends there, and uh, when the director was coming, we had to hide, to because he could kick us out. <laughs> I don't understand that, you know, you can go here, I go any to any club, people come to me, ah, oh, Mansoor, thank you for coming. And, but in my you know, home, day, it wasn't like that. It must it have been hard like for you. You're on, the, you're on the Davis Cup team to not be able to share how good you it was, were with it your was parents. Very hard. It was very hard, but that was only in that club. But most of the time, like, it, was, it was good. But we had a crazy director in that club, and, and uh, he, he, he didn't allow us. And, 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 until one day, one of the, the members that who was we were playing with, he stopped in front of the man and he said, hey, listen, man, you have to do your best two top players here. You have to be proud, you know, and you're so. And he said, if you say something, I'm going to smack you. And so from then on, it was uh, it was easier. We could go and, and play.
There's, there's the so your t- your tennis career effect- effectively gets suspended in your prime with the with yeah. the revolution, and there are some curious details about this period with you, and uh, that I want to ask you about. First of all, you you re- you just mentioned it. You repeatedly mentioned. I've noticed in some interviews of you, I was watching that you spent three years after the revolution. Uh, this is following the ban on tennis, playing backgammon every day. Why why tachte? Why why backgammon? What was that about? Because it was. Gambling, you know, the Iranians, they love to gamble. You know, they never do anything without saying, I bet you, shat me bandam, I bet you this, I bet you that. So we didn't have anything else, actually, and nothing else to do. You know, every the country was on, on fire, everything was burning, everything, no, no job. For me, I was, I'm a tennis player, I'm not a banker, I'm not a politician, I'm not an uh, actor, you know, so... Uh, and, and backgammon, there was in the tennis court, tennis club, we were playing backgammon every day. People would come there and wait for their uh, their court until the court is ready. While waiting, they were playing backgammon. So it, it was like a game that everybody plays. So we played backgammon for two, three years and, uh, and nothing else to do, 18 hours backgammon. <laughs> it was very, very, very sad and difficult to do that, but that was, that was all we had to do. There's nothing we could do. So you make your case to the authorities. Come on, let us play tennis. And you, you play a role in starting this thing called the Revolution Cup. And then in July 1980, you have this tournament where the prize is a, for the number one is, to, is, a, is a flight to Athens, right? And you, yes, you right. win. Tehran, Athens, Tehran. Yeah. So, so you win, but after winning the first prize, which is a ticket to Athens, you pay an extra couple hundred bucks and change your, your, your ticket to go to Nice, to go to France. Why did you choose Absolutely. France? Because my first thing would be America. I wanted to go to the to America. I had a visa valid from 1977, November 1977 till November 1981. But if you remember, in 1980 they had it's a, a crisis with the hostages. You yes. know, the American embassy was taken uh, by the students, a follower of Imam, and the, so the Americans they start kicking out all the Iranians, and they told us officially. Iranians are not allowed to come to America, even th- those who have a valid visa, their visa is canceled. Right. So, uh, and I knew after America, the best place for tennis is France, because I had traveled in America, I traveled in Europe, I traveled in Africa, in Australia. I knew the best place would be France. Why? Because France is a, they, we, here we have 10,000 clubs and 10,000 clubs they organize at least one tournament a year those days and even today france is the best place for practicing for the youngsters who want to become professional is the best place right. you can play very competitive tennis and you can make like uh, uh, at that time i was making like 300 400 to win a tournament you know just to survive just to make my living you know, and, and wait until they have an opportunity to, to play on the ATP to, tournaments. So that, that is why I came to France. And, and you leave your, uh, obviously you leave your family behind and, and uh, yeah. your friends in, in, in Iran and your girlfriend. Um, were you, did you, in other words, you loved tennis. You had this passion so much for tennis that you knew this is what you had to do, despite all that you were going to have to lose to leave and do this? 
Absolutely, leaving my family was really not a pleasure to leave. It was just really uh, my heart was broken, and it still is. There is not one hour in in day that I don't think about Iran, about my family who's back there, you know, and and the Iranians. But what could I do? I, uh, I if the tennis was on, I would never leave my country. I love my country of Iran, but I had to go because I love tennis too. And and without tennis, I can't breathe. I can't live. So I had to leave to play tennis. And I knew in Iran, I had nothing left. I had to spend all my money to continue living. I had to leave. I was very lucky. I was single. I I had no no kids or, or wife. So it was much easier to leave. Because when I came to France, it wasn't easy either. Because as some, I had very very tough time for a well, year. Well, by the way, you, you say know. you say you didn't have you you spent your savings. You get to Nice. I don't know if this is a true story. I think you said in one interview, the first night you get to France, you gamble what you have at a casino in Nice. I left. I left at six thirty from Tehran, and I landed at ten thirty in Nice. And here I was speaking in English to the people. I needed help to show where I can go, what can I do. No one would even look at me. So after a while, I said, "Okay, what am I going to do?" I went to the hotel. There was a, like a tourist office uh, desk there, and I went there and I said, "Please help me. I need a, a, a hotel room tonight. I have nowhere to sleep." And the lady there. She smiled at me. She said, "Wow, sure, eight of August, and you want a room? There is no none, <laughs> zero. Everything is is fully booked." And so I got out of the airport and I start walking, and uh, beside the sea on the Promenade des Anglais, you know, and you you have the sea on your right, and the, on your left you have all this the, the street, the traffic, and so it was very hot. As you can imagine, eight uh, of August in south of France, and so I'm right away by the beach, and I see these ladies playing beach volley, you know, and and all topless, and I don't know if I'm dreaming or if I'm really this is real. Hmm. I'm pinching myself, you know, and because uh, you might laugh or smile when I say that, but. Living with the, the, the Ayatollahs for three years and a half, all you see the Ayatollah in the, in, the, in, in television and radio, you forget what uh, what is uh, outside of Iran. Right. So, uh, and I, you know, I walked, walked, walked for like two hours, and I was hungry. I was thirsty, so I bought a sandwich and I bought a, a bottle of water and it cost me like nearly 20 francs and I had in my pocket two thousand dollars that was everything I had so that was like eight thousand francs and I said how am I going to do with eight thousand francs if I go to the worst hotel if I go to the uh, if I eat the cheapest food I can last for 10 days here you know 10 12 days and not knowing the language, there is no way I can find a club which where I can, you know, play the club championship and uh, keep lessons or, you know. So here I'm sitting and I'm eating my sandwiches. And then in front of me, I see casino rule. 
<laughs> so this great idea comes to my head that I have to go to the casino and try to win 30, 40,000 francs. And so maybe I can stay here two, three months with this money, you know, to last three months, four months. As I say to myself, the longer I stay, better chance More I chance have of, to yeah. find a place, to right. a club, you know, to play for. So, and I say, if I lose, staying here 10 days or one day, it doesn't change anything. So I went to the casino and then 15 minutes later, I came up with zero cents. And that was like one in the afternoon. Uh, and it's been only uh, three hours I'm in France and I have no money left. So you're, I mean, just to, to recap, the best tennis player in Iran is yeah. in France has lost all his money, there's a revolution back home, and you're this kid in, in your early 20s. Um, uh, it must have been a very confusing time to try to decide what you want to do. Yeah, it was really very, very hard, very, very difficult. And then, uh, so, you know, I come out and my head is like, I don't know what to think, I can't not even think. So finally, I have no choice and I'm saying I, I have to go back. So I go to Iran Air office and I make my reservation for day after to go back to Tehran. And in the same time, I'm saying, Jesus, everybody is going to laugh at me, you know, and he say, you know, it's I'm ashamed, you know. And so I'm crossing the street and I see a friend that I had not seen for three, four years, Farrokh Moazed which was a good tennis player and he says to me Mansoor I'm so happy to see you what are you doing when are you came when did you came here and it's great the best move you did you had no future in wait hang, hang on the same day that you've left the casino yeah 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 Just you, out, out of the, <laughs> you're walking on the street in Nice and you happen to see a friend this is a crazy yeah. story Mansoor yeah I've never and heard this story before he's a very good friend of mine and and, uh, and he says to me that was the best move you did to come out of Iran because there was no future for you. And I say, yeah. And he says, when did you come? I said, I came here this morning. But the problem is I'm going back tomorrow. He says, what do you mean? I said, I just went to Casino Alas. He says, there is no way I'm going to let you, stupid. How could you go to Casino? I said, listen, man, they don't, this is done. This is done now. And so he says to me, listen, let's go. Uh, I'm playing this afternoon. There was a club tournament. He was in the final. He says, let's go there. Maybe we can see somebody who can help you from the Federation. So we go there and, and his opponent is the vice president of the Tennis League of Côte d'Azur of South of France. So we tell the guy how, what is my level and how I'm playing. And, you know, I told him that I, two years, three years ago, we beat, I beat the, the French team in Gallia Cup, you know, and, and, uh, and he says, yeah, I heard of that. It was you in the team. I said, yeah, I won against the number two, number one, and, and we won against uh, France, and uh, which was disaster for French team. I thought we were a better team, and it was normal anyway. But uh, so uh, he says to me, well, if you, I don't know you, but if you say the truth, you have no problem staying here uh, and, and leaving of your tennis. But for that, you need to, I'm going to interview to four or five tournaments you're going to play so I can see exactly what is your level of tennis. And so I said, okay. But then I said to my friend, Farrokh, Farrokh, this is fine. But, you know, for go, I have to go from, uh, from here to Toulon. But that was the first tournament, Toulon, day after I had to go. I said, I have, 
I, I have to pay my train and everything. I have no money. And he says, well, John Gear is here. You, I, this is a number, you call him and he, he'll, he'll help you. And John Gear, my friend, when I was 17, 18, he was the one who was sponsoring me to go and play on the ATP. And so I said, listen, I'm not gonna, it's impossible for me to call him to say I went to casino and I'm here in, 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 in Nice. And, and he said, Mansur, I'll do. So he called John Gear and John Gear said, well, where are you? We are here. He said, I'll be there in one hour. John Gear came and he, and was very, I was very shamed. I was very, uh, uh, not very comfortable, you know, and I said, listen, I, I came here, I lost my money, stupid thing from my side, and, but this has happened. So now I need 2,000 francs, which was like uh, $400. Otherwise I have to go. And he said right away, he lent me the money and I went to play my tournaments. But, uh, and then I won three of five and two others I lost in the final. This is all, you know, without playing three years. So, so wait a second. It's no wonder you remember the date, August 8th, because this is a remarkable, that that day is a book. I mean, that is a, a that's a crazy story. That, but the as as invigorating as it must have been to at least see your friends there and start to feel like you get you, you might get something going in France your yeah, your I visa soon your visa soon runs out and then you become this illegal immigrant in France and I understand you spend the next 6 years kind of as this virtual prisoner in France because you because you you're you're an illegal immigrant but you also refuse to become a political refugee why did you refuse to become a refugee that is why my, my visa was ending on 29th of October. And so uh, the police, after that, I went and I please begged them to give me to extend my visa. They said, listen, you, uh, we are not going to extend your visa, not for a day, but you can apply, you can ask for asylum, you can ask for a political refugee, uh, and you give us your passport, you can stay in France, you can work, you can do your tennis, you can travel everywhere you want, but you can never go back to Iran. Uh, and I said, there is no way I am going to forget about my father, my mother, my parents, and just say, it would have been very selfish. If I was alone, no family, that right away, I would have asked for a, a political refugee. But I couldn't accept it because my father, when I left Iran that day, of August 8th, that was the first time he cried. We knew that is going to be maybe the last time we see us. Three years after, I went to see him just two days before he died. And he said, Mansur, I've been waiting a long time for this mm. moment. And he died. But uh, I think I would have never, I could never forgive myself if if I had asked for refugee, political refugee, and and not see him before he died, you know, you you weren't unknown at this point in France, even after the first year that you're there, because you're so talented. By the age of 25 in 1981, you reach the third round of the French Open as a qualifier, and your cause to get a visa is a renewal of your visa in France is taken up by influential French newspapers, L'Equipe, La Figaro. Uh, did that help? Jean, that was 1981. That was my last chance. I was 
illegal alien. I was an illegal here, okay? I was staying, hiding from the police. As soon as I see a police from 100 yards from me, I would change my direction because I was afraid to, to stop by them. And, and then they said, ask for my papers. I was afraid that they put me in the first flight and, and send me back. So when I got, I had the wild card to play the pre-qualifying. So I won three runs on the pre-qualifying, and then I was in the qualifying draw. Three runs there, and then I came to the main draw. And when I won my first run against Jean-Louis Hayet, who was number four or five in France, I beat him in a straight set. And we were in war with Iraq. Iran was on the, the news every day. Right. And so that is when the media people, they helped me to get my paper sorted and I to get my, uh, they call it carte séjour here, you call it, I don't know, green card in America. Right, right. So uh, I, they asked me, who are you? What are you doing? Iranian. I said, yes, I'm Iranian. I'm a, a legal alien here. Uh, and, uh, and I just want to play tennis. And please, if you can help me to get my paper sorted, I want to live in this country and, and play tennis. And so they said, this is unbearable, um, this is impossible. We bring sometimes the dictators, the, 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 the criminals here, we give them hospitality, we uh, give them security, and this guy just wants to play tennis. And that time, uh, that year, we had only one FM station, ra radio station. And I did an interview, they played like 20 times during a day. After week after the French Open, I went to see the police, uh, the immigration office, and the same guy that who was asking me to leave the country, uh, he gave me my uh, resident card, which I could be a resident in France. It didn't mean that I can travel, right. because with Iranian passport, no one would give you visa. I wanted to come to Canada, they didn't give me visa. Even when I was married here and I had kids, I wanted to go to play Australian Open. The Australians didn't give me visa. So right. until 1989, I got my French citizenship. Yes. Yes. So then everything became easy and I could travel and it was... Let, let me get to that because it, when you talk about the, the 10 best years, so we're dating it from uh, 79 to 89, where you lose your 10 best years in the prime as one of the best tennis players in the world. There's something else going on too, which is really interesting or um, kind of terrifying to me when I think about your story. You know, you, you, you say after a while, France offers you the opportunity to play some small tournaments. You can't travel to other countries. But I was watching this Instagram live interview you did uh, just the last week with uh, Annabelle Croft. And you said for weeks at a time, you, had, you would have nowhere to sleep. You would walk the streets of Paris. You would often make one baguette last three or four days. You didn't have money. You didn't have resources. And I think about tennis players today who are scouted, you know, when they're eight years old. I think about the documentary on the Williams sisters, those incredible tennis players, and how they're out in the court with these resources or, you know, uh, 14 hours a day. And I'm thinking about you walking around in Paris with one baguette over three or four days and what that would do to you as an athlete what that would do to your even energy, let alone your skills. How could you even maintain being a tennis player in the midst of living in that kind of situation? You know, when you have no choice, the hope was giving me the energy to stay alive and, and to keep going. You know, there were so many nights I had nowhere to sleep. I never slept in the streets. 
of Paris because I thought if I sleep one night there, that means I accept this way of life and I would maybe become one of those homeless people who sleeps under the bridges and everything. I walked all the nights and then uh, in the daytime I would go in Roland Garros in front of the, the guardian's office. There was a bench, sofa, I would just sit there and sleep two, three hours there. One of those days I was sitting there and I could see on court three, Irina Stasi was practicing with Guillermo Villas. And so I'm sitting there, I don't want to disturb them. And uh, I don't even know if they remember me or anything. So I wait there, I kind of sleep and wake and sleep. And two hours later, they finish the practice. They're coming towards the guardian's office to give, leave the ba uh, balls and everything. And they come towards me and I get up and I say, hello, Nasi, Guillermo, hello. And Nastasi says, oh my God, Mansour, I'm so happy to see you. Where have you been? How you have been? We thought that you were hung up, you were killed in the revolution or anything. No news. I'm so happy to, to hear from, to see you, you know. And he, which was very, very, for me, it was like a, a great to hear that he's, you know, he's thinks like uh, he's happy to see me. And he, t he told me, Mansu, can I do something for you if you need any help uh, or, you know, I can do many things here if you... That night, I had nowhere to sleep and I had nothing to, to eat. I just told him, everything is okay, uh, nasty, everything is good. I came here to play and I've not been long here and I'm going to, but we'll see us. And, 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 and then, we, you know, he left. But I didn't want uh, him to, you know, he could have probably say, come live with me if you have nowhere to mm. sleep uh, one week or two. But after that, what after that? I had to uh, find the right way and that was not the right way for me. So I had to get out of this mess alone and otherwise it wouldn't work. Mansur, as you say, um, things do turn around in 1989. You had turned, of course, uh, 33 years old by this time, but you get your French nationality. You're able to compete as a full-time professional player starting in 89. And that year you reached the Roland Garros doubles final at the French Open. And, yes. you know, it, it is amazing the way you were able to come back. But you, you lost a decade of your prime as a tennis player. And yet, talking to you, seeing you in interviews, watching you on the court these days, you seem so incredibly gracious, so incredibly good-humored. In fact, you're known for your upbeat personality. It, it's, it's quite remarkable. Were you ever really bitter? No one would blame you if you were bitter. How did you not descend into some kind of morose bitterness for the rest of your life for having your career stolen from you? You know what, Jian? Uh, today, there are many, many players who would have loved to be in my place. You know, I know that there are players who are top five. You know, they want to play and, you know, they are not asked to play. And I'm not bitter, no, because what can I do? Bitterness is, can only hurt me. People, they thought that I could have been, you know, great player. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how good I could have been. All I know that my best years, I was not allowed to play. I, I couldn't play. 
I think I'm very lucky man. I'm so lucky and then to be 64 and to play in Wimbledon, no one has ever mm. played at 64 in Wimbledon. They have a policy of, for example, you know, when you get to 59, you play for the last time. And, and you know, the, the tradition and the, the, in Wimbledon, it's uh, very unique and, and it's a unique tournament and it's, it's the best tournament in the world. Yes. And they asked me to come back at 64 and to play again. And I've played every year. That is fantastic to change the, the rules for me. I think that is, they have never done that for anybody. I'm very proud of that. You found this, you, you talked earlier about Jimmy Connors in, the, in, in 1993, the, the ATP Champions Tour was established. And you, you begin to then find your niche and you become, uh, it becomes this place for you to showcase your remarkable shots to audiences worldwide. And you become this magician on the tennis court that can do things with a racket that made you one of the most famous characters in, in today's Legends uh, doubles scene. Uh, what what is it about this for you now? Is it still the love of tennis, or is it getting to do something that you couldn't do for so many years of your life? No, it's the love of tennis. First of all, I don't ask anybody anything. I don't need to play. I can stay home and not to play, you know. But the crowd is something gives me so much energy. I love to entertain, and as long as I think I can entertain them, I'll go on the court and I play for them. And uh, it's nothing to do with, uh, you know, money or, 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 yeah, they give me a salary to play, but that is not the reason I'm playing. And it's just love of tennis and just thinking that I'm not going to play maybe in four years, in three years, or maybe in two years. It, it, that is <laughs> hurting me more than anything else. I just love to play tennis. You you are now playing all over the world. I mean, when there isn't a pandemic, uh, you you're beloved. Crowds love you. Do you this story that we've just got, been through over the last hour? Do you see your own story as one of redemption and inspiration, given that you all had to go through? Do you see yourself that way? People tell me that you are inspiration and then people come to me and they say your life story and uh, yeah, they, they, they tell me and I think my book was bought in many schools because people came to me and they said this is for the kids at many uh, tennis schools even, you know, they told me buying for tennis school, you know, the kids, they have to read this and yeah, if it, if it can inspire someone, I'm happy for that. What is your best lesson that you can impart to those of us who feel like pursuing our dreams are impossible at times? I think nothing is really impossible, you know, uh, uh, just keeping the hope and never giving up. Uh, that is the lesson I got from tennis. And since I was five, six years old, I had all everything against and I, I just kept coming back. 24 years ago, I create, we call it the, the Legends Trophy, Trophée de Légende in Roland Garros. Yes. And uh, for four or five years, the director of the tournament was asking, I was asking him to let me organize the Legends Trophy and everything. And Patrice Clerc, he, he, that was his name, great man, very good man. And 
He said, Mansoor, you good, you know, uh, gold guys, you're not good. Let it, forget it. I'm, I'm not going, we're not going to do it. Nobody is interested. I kept coming back year after year. After like four or five years, he said, Mansoor, I can't take you anymore. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're going to do this once, okay? And I know it's not going to work. And I don't want to see you after that anymore. I don't want to hear you, okay? I said, thank you very much. Just give me one chance. We did it. And I remember very well, there was Henri Leconte and uh, John McEnroe in the final against myself and my friend Guy Forger. And the court six, it was packed, 6,000 people. And there was like four or 5,000 people want to come in, but there was no room. And on the same, on the center court, they had the quarterfinal of the men's singles. There was Alex Koreja, the guy I love. He's a very he's great, great tennis player, great man. And Felix Mantilla. They were playing in the... There was 400 people in the center court, <laughs> 6,000 in our court. And I was watching the president of the French Tennis Federation and Patrice Clerc, while I was playing, I was telling him, oh, what do you think? This is nonsense. This is not working. And he was smiling and say, thumbs up, Mansoor, you're doing a great job. And we don't want to do it again. So, uh, and it's been 24 years now. It's amazing. It's so, amazing. So, so hope and, 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 uh, and never give up. Uh, I think you should, people should, because unfortunately, sometimes people give up early, you know, soon. But you know, you can, if you keep coming back, it, things can happen. Your your story is an amazing one. I am so grateful, uh, we all are, that you've spent so much time today. Thank you for doing this. Before I let you go, let me ask you one final question, which is, I mean, this is a show about the stories from the Iranian diaspora. You talked a little earlier about your relationship with your identity and Iran. What is your relationship to being Iranian these days? Um, and be honest, be rock. I mean, do you feel more French? How do you feel when Iranians around the world still claim you as their own? I love Iran, as I said. I love France. Both. This, I'm proud of being Iranian. I'm proud of being French too. You know, France has accepted me in this country. My wife is French. My kids are born here. I love this country. And Iran is in my heart. Every day, every second, I think about Iran. And everywhere I see Iranians who are, uh, they have some kind of success. I'm proud of them. And really, uh, I, people come to me uh, in different cities, countries, when I'm playing, hey, Mansoor, I'm Iranian, I came to see you, I saw you are playing here. And I just, if I have time, I just have a tea with them or coffee or something. If I have no time, I just shake their hand. I say, I'm sorry, I got to go. It's, um, thank you for coming. And it's, it's, it's really, uh, from, I am always happy to see when Iranians come to me and they say, Mansoor, uh, you know, we came to see you. That's it. And, and uh, Iran is a great country. I was there with my kids and, and wife uh, three months ago, in February, four months ago. And it's, there were some cities I didn't know. I really, it's, it's fantastic. But, you know, we know that there is a delicate uh, situation. And, uh, but uh, my life is here, you know, and I really, I hope 
the Iranian people are going to have good days ahead. I hope the, the things will go easier on them. Mansur, did you get recognized when you were in Iran? Do people know you? Yeah, people, they, they, they know me more now than, than 10, 15 years ago because with the, you know, the, the social YouTube, yeah, yeah. media, you know, and yeah, there's more. I, but like 10, 15 years ago, when I was going there in one week, maybe one people, one person in the street would say, ah, oh, Mansur. Now, every four or five meters, people uh, stop me. Hmm. But, uh, and how does that feel, the country that you left when you were 20, in your early 20s? How does it feel yeah, to go back and be recognized? It's, you know, it's, it's uh, I played there in 2002, 2003, 2004. We had 10,000 people came to watch us and they are, people are thirsty of any events that you make. Anything you do, the people love to come and see you, uh, love to come see Europeans. I brought the Guillermo Villas there, Mats Villander, you know, Borg, all these guys, and they had the best uh, welcome, you know, and, and uh, People just want to live uh, a, a normal life, you know, like everybody, everybody else. Thank you so much for this today. I hope uh, after this uh, COVID is is really done, you, you will um, continue touring the world. That we'll get to see you here in North America before too long. And uh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Khairi Mamlunas, and thank you so much. Merci à Say hello, I mean, to everyone. Thank you for listening to me, and, and uh, it was a pleasure. Khodafes. Khodafes, Jan. That is the great Mansour Bahrami. He joined us from Paris, France today. Well, Mansour talked about those lonely early days in France. Here's a song from his era, perhaps, and a tribute to all those who've taken that lonely walk at night in a new country. Marda Tanhoya Shab. This is Habib from 1978. Thank you so much for listening to Rook. Thank you for your support. Thanks to our whole team. Mizun Bashi. Man Marda Tanhoya Shabam. Mohr Khamushi Balabam. Tanhobukam Ji Rapteam. Telas Hame Kusasteam. تنهای تنها همجین رسوا تنها و بی فردا منم تنهای تنها همجین رسوا تنها و بی فردا منم من مرد تنهای شبم مهر خموشی بلبم Shabbat shalom. 
بگه فردا با خود و تنها آبر این شبها منم من مرد تنهای شبم مهر خاموشی بلبم من مرد تنهای شبم مهر خاموشی بلبم من مرد تنهای شبم سبت سمونده بلبم من مرد تنهای شبم مهر خاموشی بلبم